Now, mercilessness is seen often in what is called bullying today. And bullying is not really funny, but I did read this. Uh, So there was this kid being bullied by four other kids, and I decided to step in. And he didn't have a chance against the five of us. Uh, I know it's not funny, but it's kind of there. I read this one. It says, I viciously beat up my high school bully. Both his arms were broken. That's probably why I felt brave enough to beat him up. That's all I got to say about bullying right now. But, but there are merciless uh, bullies that might be called narcissists. Y'all run into them in school. Uh, narcissists, uh, sociopaths that were bullies in school. You, you face them. Uh, they need constant praise and admiration. And they're not just guys. Girls have their share of these bullies. They always need the praise. If you stop praising them or uh, diminish their praise in any way, then these narcissists will treat it as a betrayal. They have a sense of entitlement that if you ever defy their will or selfishly ask something from them, uh, you need to prepare for a hostile uh, reaction or a cold shoulder. They exploit exploit others without guilt or shame. And if you point that out, they will not get it. They, the only thing they really understand is their own needs. And they frequently demean, intimidate, or bully others. And they have people that work for them that don't know they're working for them. The psychologists call them flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. They are the narcissist fan club. The little group of girls that run around with the girl that's the head girl. Or the little group of guys that run around with the head guy. Or in adults, you see them manipulated to act on their behalf in some kind of smear campaign. That does exist. But let me affirm to you, judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. But one of the more subtle forms of mercilessness is found at church by simply not speaking, not going, not just to church, but not going to speak to somebody who needs to know the gospel. That's a form of mercilessness. It's in this story. Uh, To avoid religious bullying... Or repent of it. That's the reason we study such things as today. I want to look at three truths about running from mercy. Number one. Running from mercy through holy anger. This is what Jonah did. If you'll look at chapter 4, I'm on verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. Most successful minister ever. And he's as mad as a wet hen. Verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord. Now, so he's not giving up on God, even though he's mad at God. Who's he's mainly mad at, he's mad at God. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said? I told you what you would do. Was this not what I said? Now, imagine lecturing the Lord on this level. If you haven't done it, you may. I have. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. It's a really important thing. Jonah did not learn that God was merciful. So when I say that Jonah needed to learn about mercy, it wasn't that he didn't know about the concept. Oh, he knew the concept, and he knew God was merciful. He didn't want God to be merciful. You're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm. I know what you're really like. He's saying this like he's caught God off guard. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. After I've been so unsuccessful, I told them all 40 days they're all going to die and they're not dying. I'm so embarrassed, just kill me now. Verse 4. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? You see, the holy anger of a religious recluse is revealed here. And you may not see yourself that way, and I hope you're not that way. But Isaiah 65 and verse 5 says, Who says, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than thou. I stay in my church walls, I really don't want to reach out to anybody. I go to my little church, I go to my little class, and I really don't want to walk across the yard to talk to somebody about coming to church. Oh, you didn't imagine this was about you? You thought this was about Jonah, didn't you? That he was wicked for not wanting to do it. Interesting. It's his holy anger. Let him go to hell, Lord. Who cares about him anyway? You know what they've done. Those wicked ones. The really bad ones. Like, who are those people? They're people just like you and me. Look in the mirror. The holy anger of a religious performer... And that does exist. Matthew 23, verse 5. All their works they do to be seen by men. In the Talmud, it gives uh, five of these pharisaical hypocrites. It says there's a shoulder Pharisee who parades his good deeds like a badge on his shoulder. Wants everybody to see what he did. There's a wait a little bit Pharisee, they said, who asked someone uh, that's walking with them, hold just a second. And then he does a good deed in front of them. So everybody will know that. There's the blind Pharisee, they say in the Talmud, who uh, is bruised and, and hitting stuff because every time he sees a woman, he wants to appear that he's not lusting, so he closes his eyes and walks into something. There's the pestle uh, Pharisee who walks hangdog, Always wanting to appear to be humble, you know, his, his head must be dropped. Because if you're really humble, you'd drop your head. And uh, he wants to avoid temptation, so dropping his head, he's less likely to see one. There's the ever-reckoning Pharisee who always is counting his good deeds up and trying to compare whether his failures outweigh his good deeds or his good deeds outweigh his failures. Oh yeah, nothing new in the zoo, is there? Nothing new in the zoo. Holy anger. Where does it come from? It flows from seeing other people's sins as really bad and yet seeing your sins as not so bad. In Luke chapter 18, verse 11, it says, The Pharisee prayed thus with himself, God, 
I thank you that I'm not like other men. Who aren't you glad? I mean, we're in church. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as the tax collector. Aren't you glad we don't sin? Scary, isn't it? John chapter 9, verse 40 and 41. The Pharisees said, are we blind also? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Are you accusing us as being blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. What does that mean? That means this. If you really recognized that you were blind, then you'd probably be okay. But because you think you see everything, you're as guilty as you can be. It's funny how that works out, isn't it? Revelation 3 verse 10, I mean verse 17 says, You say I am rich, I'm wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, Poor, blind, and naked. It's funny how we don't see our sins. But we sure see theirs. He's running from mercy in this text. And he's doing it with a holy anger. They deserve something. Careful. Careful. Second truth. Running from mercy through self-pity. Look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. It says... So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. He is hoping against hope somehow the city would be destroyed anyway, apparently. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Who likes to sit in the sun, right? So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Happy. Verse 7. But as morning dawned, the next day, God prepared a worm. Now folks, do you really believe God prepared a plant and God prepared a worm? You're supposed to say amen at that point. Amen. Amen. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. Wow. One day. Verse 8. And it happened when the sun arose, God prepared... A vehement east wind. You mean you believe God prepares winds and sends them? Amen. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. See, the the self-pity of one who ends up that way because his predictions were wrong. He thought he knew what God was going to do. And God didn't do what he thought God would do. It's like Ahithophel. I love that name. Don't you love that name? Ahithophel? I love the story of Ahithophel because he is a a low life that was really smart. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed. What? They didn't listen to me. He saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his house in order and hanged himself and died. I think that's interesting. It added and died, but he hanged himself. It's kind of like thinking I'm E.F. Hutton. Everybody must listen to me. I've not found that to be the case in my case. Y'all found that to be the case. But the self-pity sometimes arises when my predictions of what should have happened don't happen the way I think they should. 
God didn't do what I thought God should do and what I was sure He would do. And if God doesn't do what I think God should do, I start feeling sorry for myself. And then there's that self-pity of the one whose pleasures have withered. And pleasures do tend to wither. Uh, Young people, guess what? One day the things you enjoy, you won't enjoy them anymore. Get ready. You think that's going to last forever. It's not going to. Food will not taste as good one day. And I'm just starting on the list right there. 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 10. I've been very zealous for the Lord, God of Israel, or the host. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Life is just not looking very good now. I'm upset. Self-pity flows from seeing sinners happy and the good guys having hardships. I can't believe the good guys are struggling while the sinners are frolicking and partying. Well, get ready. It can get worse than that. Malachi 1 verse 13, they say, oh, what a weariness it is, and they sneer at it. So what happens is they even start sneering at their faith. It's funny, people will cut their nose off to despite their own face. Something goes wrong at church. Well, I'll get back at them. I'll never go again. Well, that's really brilliant. Like, I don't like that preacher. I don't like him much either. But you got an obligation to the Lord God, not to me. They'll replace me sooner or later. That's coming. And I'll be relieved, probably. (laughs) Luke chapter 7, verse 34. A glutton and a wine-bibber. That's what they said about Jesus. I can't believe you're having fun. You must be wicked. Luke chapter 15, verses 29 through 30. It says, And he said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you, and I never transgress your command at any time. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. What is the problem here? Self-pity flows from seeing sinners happy while the goods, goody guys have it hard. Oh, i got to go to church. Oh, it's so rough. That guy's over there. He's having a party. But oh, it's so tough on me. You let you bring the guy back in after he sinned like that and you act like you're thrilled he's back. And I've been trugging along here trying to serve the Lord all oh, these many years. And it's been so hard. Yeah. He's running from mercy through self-pity. He felt more sorry for himself than he did all those people. In Nineveh. Isn't that interesting? Final lesson. Running from mercy through willful ignorance. Verse 9 of Jonah 4. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? (laughs) That's a good question. And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. (laughs) What an answer. Verse 10. But the Lord said, You've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow. You didn't do anything to make that plant come up. You didn't even plant the seed. Which came up in a night and perished in a night. It wasn't meant to last. 
Verse 11. And listen to this. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Now listen to what God described. It's almost as if God was proud of what they had built. Because God called it a great city. What? That great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern their right hand from their left. Or in your case, their right hand from their left. And it that interesting? And then it adds a very interesting statement. And much livestock. Now, let me invite you into God's world just a moment. Because we live in our world. Nineveh was God's work. You hear me? Nineveh, that wicked city that had changed, was God's work. It was a great city. And at 120,000, I don't know if that's talking about adults who don't know the right from the wrong. But what it actually sounds like is 120,000 innocent children that had not yet learned their right hand from their left. Innocent children who don't know their right hand from their left. And innocent animals who have never done wrong. Listen. Come into God's world just a moment. His eye is on the sparrow. His eye is on the sparrow. And you think he doesn't care about that guy who sinned next to you. His eye is on the sparrow. He cares about cows. Do you hear me? He cares when a cow dies. Now, I'm not a vegetarian. I love to eat them. But he cares. I haven't found my heart bleeding when I'm eating a steak. Doesn't worry me. I've shot birds with my BB gun when I was a kid. But his eye is on the sparrow. He's aware of when one bird dies. And then he says, are you not worth far more than that? How in the world could you not care about these people? How could you not care about 120,000 babies that would die if that city was destroyed? How could you not care about the animals that would just be destroyed? How could you be so full of your own idea about the way things are that you'd just as soon... China be wiped off the map. Do you see how God thinks differently? The willful ignorance of not looking at it from even man's view. Romans 5 verse 7 says, For a good man, someone would even dare to die. Folks, men matter. People matter. I don't care if they pull in front of you in the road. They matter. The people at the grocery store matters. Everybody matters. Especially good folks, right? They matter. And then there's that willful ignorance of not looking at it from God's perspective. 
Things going wrong, Genesis 50 verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day and to save many people alive. God has big plans. God had big plans for Nineveh. I don't know what they were. It's not any of my business. God has bigger plans than I have. I'm trying to figure out how to make ends meet. He's trying to figure out how to win the entire world. He cares about everybody. And willful ignorance flows from seeing only what's wrong with others. In Matthew chapter 7 it says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? If you can only see what's wrong with other people, you can't see it all. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26 it says, Look at the birds of the air that they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And listen to John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to this next statement. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He sees differently than we do. Jonah's running from mercy through willful ignorance. We are often willfully ignorant of God's attitude toward what's going on around us. And it stymies the mercy that we would show. So we have often this holy anger at sin. We have a self-pitying because people who have sinned worse than us, we think, are doing better than us. And then we have this willful ignorance about the value of everybody. One was forgiven a giant amount, and then he turned around and throttled his friend over a small amount. It's crazy how we think, isn't it? How do we show mercy? Ran into this story. It's in a book called A Higher Call. I won't go into it too deep, but it's a true story. This is a true story. Sometimes the stories aren't true. You know, when I talk about an animal talking to people, unless it's in the Bible, then it's true. It's also was covered by CNN. It's been on YouTube. It's a story of a pilot called Charlie Brown. That's really his name, Charles Brown, who was flying a B-17 and had been on a mission. They're on their way back, and their B-17 has been shot all to pieces. Tail section of the plane's almost gone. The guy that's the tail gunner is dead and his blood is frozen on the back end. Those things get cold up there. It is obvious he's dead where he's laying. The men inside the plane are tending to the wounded inside. They're not manning their guns anymore. They're trying to get home. The plane is barely flying. It's just barely staying in the air. Holes are in it from one end to the other. They were strafed about eight to ten times in the middle of their bombing run. On their way back, all of a sudden, they look up, and the pilot, Charlie Brown, says to his co-pilot, Oh, my God, this is a nightmare. He's going to destroy us. And his co-pilot looked, and a German Messerschmitt had come up beside him, very fast plane, came up right beside him. Not only was there, but it looked like he was headed right into him. But he flew on one side, 
Then he flew on the other side of the plane and traveled along with him. He didn't shoot him down. He got on the other side and then he waved at the pilot after they got over the ocean, headed back to England, and he went away. And they were totally stunned. They, don't, they didn't know what happened. They're like, what happened? Well, that pilot's name was Steiger, Franz Steiger. He was one of 1,200 of the German pilots that survived the war. There were 28,000, and only 1,200 survived. Amazingly, he survived after 300-and-something uh, times in the air, fighting. He had never done that before. His brother had been killed by the Americans, and he had every reason to bring that plane down that day. He was out on the runway, and the plane came over. He thought, that plane's going to land. It's so low. And so he jumped in his plane, and he took off to go up there and shoot him down. As he came up, he expected the tail gunner to be shooting at him. There was nothing there. He realized the tail gunner was dead. He flew up kind of beside it and saw that nobody was manning any of the other guns. They were tended to the wounded because just about everybody was shot up in the plane. And that's when his teaching kicked in. He had been trained by, and he's a very religious guy, but he'd been trained by his commanding officer. And he said to him, you follow the rules of war for you, not your enemy. You fight by rules to keep your humanity. He said, I realized at that moment, if I shot them down, it would be murder. It wouldn't have been war. I'd have just been killing a man for no reason at all. And said, but I knew that if I didn't fly with them a little ways, somebody else would shoot them down. So I flew with them until they got out over the ocean. And then he left them. Now, how do we know all this? Well, Charlie Brown always wanted to know he survived the war as well. And he always wanted to know what happened that day. Who was this guy? And he finally, after trying for years and years and years, this is way late in life. He's now retirement age. He had retired from the military and he tried really hard to find out who this was. Finally, he was able to place an ad in a German newsletter for the Luftwaffe that the guy was a member. And this is what was written back. Dear Charles, All those years, I wondered what happened to the B-17. Did she make it or not? Because he didn't think he'd make it back to England. And sure would be nice to talk about our encounter sometime. Charlie couldn't wait. Found out he was living in Canada. Called him up. They ended up meeting. It was actually recorded on TV. It's been on TV. And Steiger said this, I love you, Charlie. It went further than that. They became such good friends, they kept up with each other every day. Charlie Brown had had all these nightmares through the years, and suddenly this went away. He gathered up all of his family, and all the family of the flight crews, and all that had been born, and they all had a party, and they took a, they took a video of everybody that was alive, that if he had shot them down, they wouldn't have been there. And he had a party in the honor of Steiger. And they all were there at this big to-do. And of course, everybody was crying because of the mercy that this guy had shown him. But in a very real way, what Charlie Brown was doing was also showing mercy back to Franz Steiger. Listen to what was written in a book that Steiger wrote to Charlie Brown. And and I want you to remember, they, they were friends. 
They were friends that meant to kill each other. They became good buddies, fishing buddies. Their wives, their children knew each other. Until in 2008, Steiger was 92 and he died. And Brown, age 87, within months of each other, died. Found in Brown's library is this statement. In 1940, this is from Steiger to Brown. In 1940, I lost my only brother as a night fighter. On the 20th of December, four days before Christmas, I had the chance to save a B-17 from her destruction, a plane so badly damaged, it was a wonder that she was still flying. The pilot, Charlie Brown, is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie, your brother, friends. Mercy. You show it, and it comes back to you. You don't show it, and that comes back to you. We need to learn mercy. Mercy, mercy. Please, Lord, show us mercy so that we can show others mercy. Amen? Jonah knew that God was merciful. He just didn't want it to be shown. You now know God is this kind of merciful. Can you will it for others? Can you want everybody to receive God's mercy? If you can, that's the heart of what we're supposed to be about. We need to receive God's mercy, and then we need to show God's mercy. So come looking for mercy, and you will find it. God will come running to you with mercy. If you would choose to come forward today repenting of your sins, confessing the name of Christ, willing to be baptized, God will come running with mercy and all your sins will be forgiven. It's your decision. But if you receive that, don't just sit on it in church. Show it and give it away. Won't you come if you need to? Why don't we stand and why don't we sing?